I V M. The scout is half dead with terror and exhaustion. His horse is flecked with foam and drenched in sweat. The sides of its neck are raw with whippings. He clatters into the courtyard of the castle and is quickly helped off by soldiers. The captain of the guard, pulling on his overcoat, hurriedly runs up to meet him. The scout had been posted on the Khyber Pass, overlooking the once prosperous trade route into Afghanistan and Central Asia. But one after another, the great cities had fallen to a new horde of invaders. The same invaders who conquered the lands once ruled by the Indo-Greeks and the Shakas, beyond the Hindu Kush and the fertile valley of the Amu Darya River. The previous night, he saw a mighty force of cavalry archers issue forth from Kabul. There was only one possible destination: the city of Takshashila, center of trade, learning, and immeasurable riches, sanctified by the remains of saints, the jewel of South Asia, and the target of every conqueror who wished to seize the lands of India from its untamable kings. The city commanded the trade from Central Asia and Afghanistan into India, and had grown wealthy beyond all reckoning. It was the last bastion of the Indo-Parthian kings, who only a generation ago had transformed the vast city into a gorgeous edifice of marble and gold, worthy of being their capital. But in a strange twist of fate, the Indo-Parthians would not get to enjoy the beauty of the city that they had built. But the scout didn't know all that. He had done his duty, lit the signal fires. and tried to estimate the number of foes heading through the pass almost getting an arrow in between the eyes for his troubles now he gave his report to the guard captain the guard captain his curly head of parthian hair drenched with sweat his greek face pale sent a message to his indian wife and his shaka servants ordering them to pack their belongings and head to the monasteries outside the city where he would send some troops to escort them away Now as the sun bathes the city's eastern walls with rays of blood red the torches of the nomad warriors paint it with their golden glow inside the city riots break out and the wealthy begin to flee the poor have nowhere to go the faithful frantically pray for salvation in the buddhist chaityas and the temples of the zoroastrians and the greek and indian gods but their priests calm them The conquerors they say are not barbarians they will not destroy they come as saviors and of course the priests would say that for they received messages declaring the intentions of the would be conqueror professing his devotion to each of their gods and backed by coins of silver on some of these coins he declares his devotion to the buddha on some he declares himself a successor of the indo greeks and on some he declares himself a worshipper of hercules And is it not fitting that a warlike god would have warlike followers? This new conqueror, Kujala Kadphises, king of the Kushanas, portrays himself as the foremost devotee of all the gods. His royal authority is no different from the authority of the gods themselves. A new era is dawning in the history of Takshashila and Gandhara, and though the rest of the Indian subcontinent does not yet know it and will soon forget them, The conquests of the Kushanas will influence the land as much as the Mauryas did 300 years ago. When the Chinese Emperor Han Wudi 
decided to attack his northern neighbors, the Xionyu tribes, he can hardly have known what earth-shaking consequences it would have. For the Xionyu, nomads that they were, decided to take their fate into their own hands. They didn't give up easily, fighting back against the Chinese so effectively that the Chinese soon sent out ambassadors to another tribe that neighbored the Xionyu. These were the Yuechi, whom the Indians would better know as the Kushanas. The Yuechi involvement with the Xionyu proved to be a disaster. Soon their ruler and his sons were killed in a battle and they were forced to leave their ancestral lands and move west, desperate for land to feed their horses and their flocks of sheep. There, they met the Shakas and forced them out, possibly crushing the remains of the Indo-Greeks in Bactria, a story recounted from the Shaka perspective in Buddha Goes to Afghanistan, which was episode 2 of this podcast. History has many perspectives and many protagonists, many heroes and villains. In this episode, the Kushanas, who were villains to the Shakas, are the victims of the Shionyu and the heroes of their own story. I digress. The Yuechi settled into the fertile valley of the Amudarya River. Five tribes, each of them led by a chief, formed a confederation and each ruled over a slice of territory. In this fertile land, where once the Greeks had ruled and built vineyards and canals, the Yuechi may have found a respite from fear and settled down into an easier existence. Their sheep could grow fat on grass and their soldiers could feed on roasted mutton. The cities paid tribute. Those that were political centers and dared to resist were completely destroyed. The farmers provided them with food. Unlike the much later Mongols in medieval Persia, the Yuechi saw no need to spread wholesale destruction and terror. But they were no less interested in conquest and territorial expansion. To do that though, they could no longer be nomadic warriors for no nomad could hope to pacify the vast lands of South Asia on horseback alone. The countries they wished to conquer were already home to horse-riding nomads who had come before them, but they were turbulent, chaotic and unstable, unable to hold on to their territories any more than oil could calm the waters of a raging river. If the UHA were to last, they would have to be different. It was time for them to establish cities, administration and taxes. It was time to raise armies and gain the support of religious and political elites. In short, it was time for the Yuechi to become the Kushanas. In the first century CE, the wars between the Shakas and the Satavahanas tore apart the Deccan and this process began. Conflict erupted between the five chiefs. Soon, only one ruler remained standing, Kujala Cadphyses, ruler of the Gushana tribe, a prince who may have been educated in the Indo-Parthian court in Dakshashila. Now united, the Yuechi would henceforth be called the Kushanas. They were ready to attack the Indo-Parthians and wrest from them control of Afghanistan and more importantly, the wealthy trade routes of the Silk Road heading into Gandhara and from there into India. Afghanistan was theirs within decades and Kujala soon attacked the city where he had once studied. Chinese ambassadors to the Kushanas have much to say about the matter in their usual stuffy way. The prince of Guishuang, named Chiu Chiu Chue, Kujala Cadvices, attacked and exterminated the four other tribes. He established himself as king, and his dynasty was called that of the Guishuang king. He invaded Anshi, the Indo-Parthian kingdom, and took the Kaofu region, Kabul, 
he also defeated the whole of the kingdoms of Paktia and Kapisha and Gandhara. Chiu Chue was more than 80 years old when he died. His son, Yang Kaochun, became king in his place. He defeated Tianzhu, northwestern India, and installed generals to supervise and lead it. The Yuezhe then became extremely rich. All the kingdoms called the Kuishuang Kushan king, but the Han called them by their real name, Da Yuezhe. Kushana rule was much firmer and politically stable than its predecessors, allowing for trade links to flourish. They picked up the religion of their subjects and fused it with their own because of a need to get popular and elite support, just like the Shakas and Indo-Greeks did before them. But by the time the Kushanas arrived, there had already been much religious development as we saw in the first few episodes of the season. So when they brought their eclectic patronage to this new mix of diverse religions, the results were, to put it simply, astounding. You might be rather surprised to hear that Vima Cadphysis, who was one of the successors of Kujala, was a Shiva worshipper, or at least he claimed to be a Shiva worshipper. The cult of Shiva is not something that has come up often in our story, since we've mostly been exploring the Buddhist footprint on early Indian history. But of course, traditions that we now call Hindu were already busily evolving and competing alongside them as well. The case of Shiva who is one of the major gods of the Hindu pantheon, is worth dwelling on because it's a pattern that we'll see in other gods and goddesses as well. In the earliest texts, the Vedas, Shiva doesn't feature at all. Rather, his role as a fierce, destroying deity is filled by Rudra, which means Rora. Rudra is a storm god, associated with the terrifying howls of dark nights. The terrible aspect of Rudra is pretty clear in this verse from the Black Yajurveda. Homage to your wrath, Rudra, haunter of the mountains, do not harm the world of men. Homage to him who roars and screams, spare us, Rudra, wearing an animal skin, blood red, may your thousand missiles fell another than us. By the second century BCE, the post-Vedic literature, which we call the Upanishads, had developed a new sort of theology. No longer did people sacrifice to appease the angry gods. Instead, they could get on the gods' good side through devotion and prayer. Sarudra was acclaimed as the supreme god, and all gods declared by his worshippers to be mere aspects of him. And so his transition began into Shiva, the auspicious one, a god of war and destruction but also fertility and renewal. As Indian merchants and traders, drawn by the lure of gold, moved into Afghanistan and Central Asia, they brought this god with them. Vima Cadphysis, realizing that Shiva worshippers were super influential, went out of his way to present himself as one of them. But he wasn't really familiar with the way that Shiva would have been depicted in the Gangetic Plains, because that's not where he ruled. Instead, he used the artistic style of India's Northwest, its most syncretic area, and made his coins depict him almost like a Greek god, tall, muscular, with a bull and trident, and of course his uh, lingam or phallus. Other ideas, such as the god's association with snakes, the crescent moon and so on, would become part of his story later, and they would have been associated with other gods at this time, and so they don't appear on Kushana coins. It's a fascinating snapshot of a god in motion, a god considered so essentially Hindu and so essentially Indian, and yet represented in such a fundamentally different way. 
Vima himself must have been a most colorful character. He was a barrel-chested man with a thick, profuse beard and a prominent nose. On his coins he wears a funny sort of hat crown which hides the fact that his head is a little elongated. Why? Let me introduce you to an interesting Kushan practice, skull binding. Babies have soft skulls. The bones of their skull are still separated by soft cartilage and as they get older they fuse into a hard helmet sort of thing for our soft brains. Over the millennia Many humans have had the bright idea of applying pressure to baby heads so they grow in ways that society thinks is beautiful. The Incas of Peru for example tied boards to their babies heads so they'd have conical heads. The Kushanas also tightly bound their babies heads giving them distinctive elongated skulls which are visible in many of their coins or maybe we're just reading too much into it. Anyway, by the time Vima had stabilized the Kushan empire by subsuming the fragmented Indo-Parthian, Shaka and Indian states Shiva was hardly the only god that was worshipped. In fact, the Kushan religion is so damn interesting because so many religions that we see now as different entities seem to be so organically fused into a single aspect of state power. This was probably also the heyday of the Zoroastrian and Greek gods. Like the Indo-Parthians before them, the Kushanas incorporated elements of Zoroastrianism because the Parthians remember were an offshoot of the same tribe that conquered Zoroastrian Persia and also like the Indo-Parthians the Kushanas attempted to revive cultural memories of the Indo-Greeks who as we've seen played a transformative role in making Gandhara a player in the politics of the subcontinent and within a broader global context this is the time when thanks to centuries of urbanization and conflict across the Mediterranean world the Roman Empire had fully emerged in its most powerful and expansive form The western regions of the Roman Empire had Latin imposed on them by Rome whereas the eastern regions remained primarily Greek. This is an interesting contrast because as we've seen by the 1st and 2nd century CE Sanskrit was also emerging as a language of subcontinental elites as we explored in episode 6 of this podcast. Now to the Romans, Greek as a culture was seen as highly prestigious and desirable and as one of the major consumers of Kushana trade and manufactures This certainly had an impact on Kushana tastes as well. Thus the Kushanas declared themselves to be Philhellenes or Greek lovers and incorporated elements of Greek culture into their religion. Ahura Mazda, the chief Zoroastrian god, was identified with Zeus, the chief Greek god. The Greek goddess of victory, Nike, had been worshipped by the UH even before they became Kushanas, you see. Hercules, whom the Indians called Vasudeva, was identified with the Zoroastrian god of royal glory Varathragna in some places they even took greco-persian gods like Mithra and made them Kushan the Kushanas weren't really unique in doing so but they just continued financed and confirmed an existing process of religious fusion one thing that does set the Kushanas apart is what might be a royal cult the worship of the ruling dynasty They were built temples to gods who were closely connected to the ruling dynasty and the temples would feature galleries of Kushan kings who may well have been worshiped through their connections to the gods. In addition, the temples featured beautiful wall paintings of the gods interacting with the kings and perhaps even fire altars representing the dynasty. Alternatively, the temples could reflect the devotion of the sovereign to the gods, thanking them for the power that they supposedly gave him. 
and by showing off all the members of their dynasty, they might have been establishing the dynasty's right to rule over the other members of the Kushan tribal federation. At least one temple built by Vima Cadphyses may have been run by priests of Shiva. The connection of royalty and divinity isn't really new, but it's a striking parallel to see this idea emerging in India at the same time as it did in Rome and China, the other super powerful regions of the time. In Rome, the emperor took the title Divi Filius, son of the god, since the Romans had the habit of worshipping dead emperors as gods. In China, the emperor was called the son of heaven. The Kushana kings, on their coins, declared themselves to be Devaputra, son of god. In fact, later Kushan kings even called themselves Kaisera, a copy of the Roman title Caesar, which is correctly pronounced as Kaisar. And of course, they incorporated Indian ideas of royalty as well. They called themselves Maharaja Raja Dhiraja, the great king, king of kings. And it can't be ruled out that the newly emerging Indian idea that kingship itself was an exalted position influenced them, as expressed by the roughly contemporary Manusmriti. Like the sun, he burns eyes and minds. No one on earth can bear to gaze upon him. He is fire, he is wind, he is the sun, he is the moon, he is Yama, Lord of Dharma, he is Kubera, Lord of wealth, he is Varuna, Lord of justice, he is Indra, Lord of gods by reason of his power. These ideas could have been influenced by or influenced Kushan ideas. The trade of the Silk Road was leading to a spread of ideas and an intellectual flourishing that would profoundly change India and the world. What we can still see on their coins is just a shadow of how diverse the empire actually was, only a selection of the most popular ideas and gods. The Kushanas maintained political and economic stability in Gandhara for decades and this allowed for more and more opportunities for traders, craftsmen and merchants. So cities began to spring up all over the place. So many in fact that the modern province of Peshawar in Pakistan corresponding to Gandhara has still not urbanized to the extent that it had about 1900 years ago. And these cities would have reflected the diversity and interconnectedness of the times. Architecture and art styles blended, city planning reflected Greek and Indian elements. If you've seen the Parthenon in Athens, imagine something like that, a palace or a fort on a hill overlooking a city. But the city itself is laid out using Indian ideas of geometry and sacredness, with 81 districts, each with their own god. It is bisected by a royal road or Rajamarga, leading from the main gate to the palace. At the center is a stupa or a temple with public buildings, administrative structures and art galleries. All the main roads are lined with shops and merchants live behind or on top of their own shops in mansions of varying sizes, with the largest ones being two or even three stories tall and having up to 20 residents, including servants, a separate quarter for women and a terrace for playing board games, entertaining guests or having sex. Outside the city, the suburbs would stretch for miles. Beautiful gardens and pleasure houses, temples and monasteries, places for the populace to gather in their leisure time. And stretching away into the distance, vineyards and farms to feed the city, nestled in the gorgeous mountains of the northern part of the subcontinent. They would have been sights to behold, reverberating with voices in dozens of languages and chants to dozens of gods. It is from these cities that the next Kushana ruler, 
probably the most famous of the lot would expand the empire to the apogee of its power and preside over a time when the subcontinent was infused with the ideas and political processes that would shape it for centuries if those ruins could tell the stories of their inhabitants what rich detailed human lives would echo in our ears if you like this podcast why not leave us a rating and review and don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network you can listen to us on the IVM podcast app or ivmpodcast.com while you're at it follow us on twitter and instagram at @ivmpodcast and if you have questions or comments on this episode of echoes i'm at akanisetti on twitter and at anirudh devaraya on instagram